All right. Well, hey, good morning, guys. Or good afternoon or evening if you're watching this or listening to this some other, some other time. Man, you know what? In, in a, like Nally was saying, there's been a lot of challenging parts of the pandemic and this last year and change. Uh, who would have thought, man, last March that we'd still be here uh, a year plus later. Uh, but one of the things I think I am going to miss is having church outside. There's a lot of challenging parts to it that fortunately here in California, we are okay. Uh, you know, it's like the twice a year that it rains. Uh, but it's kind of nice having church uh, under the palm trees, overlooking Back Bay, nice little breeze coming through. Actually, today's is, is especially nice. But uh, man, it's so good to see you guys. It's so good to see you guys. I forgot what the bottom half of your faces look like, but uh, your eyes look great. It's good to see you. Uh, our, just if, you, if you're new or you're watching online and you're new, just want to go over some of our core values before we hop into the uh, passage we're going to talk about today. Our hope as a church is that we're an answer to prayer uh, for you, regardless of where you are at on your spiritual journey. If you are uh, new to faith or you've been a serving uh, Christ for decades or somewhere in between, or maybe you're just exploring the whole thing and you're, you're not sure what to believe uh, yet. Uh, we just want to be a place where you can safely explore that, what it would look like to fully engage with Christ. I know for, I can speak for Natalie and I, that you're an answer to prayer for us. I remember, you know, three years ago, uh, before we launched the church, we would dream about who would come to the church. And we would see this, oh, but only in our eyes, or in, in our heart. We never saw it with our eyes. And to see you guys engaging, and even like last week, we had a uh, Voice Kids volunteer meeting uh, to introduce everyone to Madison and, and, and dream and plan for this next season of what it would look like to reopen Voice Kids at some point in the next few months. And looking at all the people on the Zoom were individuals who uh, were literally on family vacation, who took time uh, from the slopes where they were skiing to uh, for this meeting. I'm sure it's the last thing they want to do, but they were excited about it. Other people were coming in literally right in from work, just came in the door and they were eating while uh, they were on the meeting. And it's just, I'm so grateful that there's so many people uh, that, uh, including the amazing people on the production team, worship team, that this isn't a church that they just go to. It's a church that they're a part of. They caught on to the vision. And three years ago when we were planning the church, they didn't, we didn't even know each other. So it's pretty exciting to see. Uh, the last time we actually taught on the passage we're going to talk about today uh, was two and a half years ago on our launch Sunday. On September, uh, what was that, September 16th. Uh, 2018. I should remember that because my brother's birthday too. So November 16, 2018, we launched the church and we taught on this passage. I'll never forget that day. Some of you guys were there. Uh, we actually had to close the doors to the community center like three or four minutes uh, after the first service uh, started because we were over fire code. And so we had to pass out Starbucks gift cards and say, thank you for coming. Uh, we're full. And if you want, we're going to do a second service in an hour and a half. And a lot of people are like, well, thanks for the card. <laughs> I'll, see you, I'll see you later. Uh, and so free Starbucks on us. But we had to close the doors. And what, one of my favorite days, and it was kind of a weird thing to be, like a favorite thing for that day. One of my favorite um, things that day was there were barely anybody engaging in worship. Most people were like this or hands in their pockets. And one of my friends who was a pastor goes, oh man, it was kind of disappointing to see how few people were engaging in worship. And I was like, no, that was my favorite part of the day. He's like, why? That's like messed up. I was like, because that means that there are most of the people that are there don't know what to do in a church setting. 
they're unchurched, they're de-churched. If everyone is raising their hands and worshiping, I'm like, oh, no, we're reaching church people. Just a bunch of church people that just migrated over from a different church. Or there's a bunch of people who had uh, left church, and more we heard stories, left a previous church years earlier, many of them, and had baggage and were unsure about this whole thing of institutionalized church. And so we're like, oh, we'll see, we'll see. I'm not ready to worship yet. One of my favorite things, one of our underlying principles for us as a church is to be a church for those who have given up on the idea of church. We don't say that a lot in the front because it's kind of a uh, behind-the-scenes principle for us as we kind of design what we do. But we want to be a church for those who have given up on the idea of church. That there's people that our dream is to reframe church in a way that instead of a place of hurt, it can be a place of hope. You know, for some of us, church is a place of pain. And it can once again be a place of purpose. And so that's going to want to reframe that for people. And uh, so a little background on me in case, again, if there's so many people that are, have joined the church since the pandemic. Uh, so uh, I wanna, let me give you a little bit about me and uh, kind of why I lead the way I do and kind of why I am the way I am. Because I may be a little unorthodox compared to the a pastor you knew uh, before or um pastor you saw on tv if you're like not really a church person yet uh, i didn't grow up in a christian house i grew up in kind of this uh urban hood unsafe kind of area uh, outside of chicago growing up and and there was an ugly bus that would pick up kids on sunday mornings a purple bus uh, for anybody who wanted to go to church right, a bus route uh, and so i would go because you would get cookies uh, and, you know, my friends told me we should go. We play games. You get, I'll never forget, I won this competition where who can blow the biggest bubble with bubble gum. I don't know why. I remember that. I was like eight years old. But I would get picked up and go there. I remember they would talk about one Sunday, um, where at the end of every Sunday, we have to, after class time, they would talk about there's this lake of fire. There's a pit with lava. And you're going to go there and burn. I mean, I was like eight years old, right? And they would say, if you don't want to go there, uh, stay after class, and we'll tell you how to avoid it. Okay, I'm in, right? Like, that's not something I want to do. And then I realized that whoever stayed after class, everyone would wait on the bus for them. And then when they stayed after class, when they came onto the bus, everyone would cheer, like all the leaders would cheer, and they'd get like a second round of cookies. So it's like, okay, so you don't have to go in the, in the, in the burning pit, and you also get more cookies. So I was in. So I remember staying after class, and and the, the priest gave me this King James Bible, which every eight-year-old loves. Uh, gave me this King James Bible. I still have it to this day. And he highlighted some verses that I didn't understand. And I went on my way. And I, 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 don't, want, I don't think I was, I made a decision. I'm pretty sure I didn't make a decision to become a Christian that day. But I did get extra cookies. And then we moved uh, to further out to the northwest burbs. And my mom started going to church. Uh, a Korean Presbyterian church. Uh, and if any of you guys are Korean or know Koreans, uh, if they went to church many times, it was a Korean Presbyterian church or on a, a Korean Pentecostal church. <laughs> I got a Sundays of God Pentecostal church. Uh, those are kind of your options. So uh, I started going to a Korean Presbyterian church and did not like it. Uh, and my to I told my mom, when, when can I stop going to church? And she said, when you turn 13, you can stop going to church. So the day I turned 13, I stopped going to church. And then towards my junior, junior year, I started through a series of events that I don't have time to go into. 
I happened to cr across a few friends who had disappeared from our friendship circles. They stopped partying with us and all kind of stuff. And then I found out they were going to church. So they invited me to this youth group on Wednesday nights. It was like 1,200 kids on a Wednesday night. And there was a totally different approach. When I went there, I found out that they didn't force me to believe things that I didn't want to believe or I wasn't ready to believe yet. They established relationships before rules. What was interesting about the people that I met at that church when I was a junior uh, was they were normal. And I had never associated that word with church people uh, before that moment. They were normal. And actually, they were, they were cool. And I never really associated that word with church people. And they put up with where I was at. I wasn't ready to be a Christian. I had a ton of questions. I had a ton of doubts. I was very confidently wrong in a lot of areas of my life, like many high schoolers are. And I would, uh, how do I say this? Uh, I didn't have glaucoma, but I acted like I had a severe case of glaucoma uh, in that season. So I would partake of uh, seed-bearing plants on this earth. Okay, so that, a lot of that season. So the church leaders didn't care. They, I remember they would pick me up for small group. And they would have literally have bags of Funyuns or Cheetos or Cool Ranch Doritos because they knew I'd had the munchies. And they'd bring me to small group, and they'd come and tell me the same thing over and over again. They would say, Taco, when you're ready, we're ready. When you're ready, we're ready. Until then, we're just really glad that you're here. And they were patient. Six months, I went to small group. I went to Wednesday night youth group because the whole thing was intriguing. And so I made a decision on March 11th, 95, to give my life to God. And then what I found out is these leaders— their roles shifted. Now that I became a believer, the best way I can describe it, I was trying to think of what words I use to describe how they led me in that season. And the best thing I can do is they were, they were guides, not travel agents. They were guides, not travel agents. The difference is a travel agent, we've used travel agents, I'm sure you have. A travel agent says, you should go on this trip. It's going to be awesome. Tell me all about it. Have fun. A guide says, follow me. This is going to be great. Let me show you how to do this. And what I see a lot of times in church is we are travel agents. We tell people, you, gotta, you should be a Christian. Go have fun. You will raise your hand if you want to make a decision. And then that individual, and this may be some of your guys' stories, that individual goes home and goes, how do I read the Bible? Dusting off an old Bible, or old King James Bible, it doesn't make sense. I have so many questions. Who do I ask? And what you need is you need a guide. And the, the biblical word is discipleship. The biblical word for a guide is a disciple maker. Right? Someone that says, come follow me. Let me show you how to do this. And the reason why I tell you some of that backstory is it colors how we do church. It colors how I lead the way I lead. Jesus never expected non-church people to act like church people. What he expected was church people to act like church people. He, acted, he, he expected followers of God to act like they were following God. And so that's actually what we're going to talk about today. So here's what we believe as a church. You belong before you believe. We would love for you to believe what we believe. We think following Jesus is the best decision you could ever make. They're going to be glad you did it today. You're going to be really glad you did it a thousand years from now. But we believe that you don't have to believe like us to be a part of us. We believe that you belong because we're both made in the image of God. We're both created by God. That We believe that we're both uh, valuable beyond measure. That you're made in the image of God and salvation is found only in Jesus. And I'll tell you what was told to me, what I've told hundreds of people over the years, is that when you're ready, I'm ready. 
When you're ready, we're ready as a church. And you may be ready today or you may be ready 20 years from now or somewhere in between. But when you're ready to give your heart to Jesus, we're here. We're here not as a travel agent, not to try to sell you on something, not to make it just for you to make a decision and count you as a number, but to help you and be a guide and show you what it means. It would be our greatest honor to show you what a thriving walk with Jesus would look like. So to capture what God is like, you need to look what Jesus is like because there's so many misconceptions. Because a lot of times, I think that the biggest evangelistic tool the church has had over the years has been the lifestyle of Christians. A compelling example, and I think the most anti-evangelistic tool, the thing that's kept so many people away from the church or turn away from the church, has also been the lifestyle of Christians. And especially this past year, the, the behavior of Christians, or at least the narrative of the behavior of Christians, has been extremely polarizing. Depending on the Christian you know, the Christian you watch on TV, that can be an engaging thing, I want to know Jesus more, or it can be something that pushes you away from the whole idea of faith. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a lot of scripture today. Okay, We don't, we don't normally do this, and like I, I've told you guys before, we used to have a TV, and actually it's actually in the room over there, but we used to have a TV here that would show like, you know, lyrics, normal stuff, like lyrics and uh, Bible verses so you can follow along. But we found that you can't see it in the sunlight, so we don't bring it out anymore. So if you're following along, we're actually going to read through the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15. Uh, Eric did a great job last week of going through the first part of this chapter. We're actually going to read the part he taught on again. I'm just going to glance over it. If you want to go more in depth on the beginning of Luke chapter 15, go back and listen to last week's teaching or watch it. Uh, but we're going to go through it again because it gives context uh, for what we're going to talk about. And if you missed last week, this will actually be even more helpful for you. So here's what's happening. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 says this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, tax collectors, if you're, un if you're unaware, uh, many of you guys have grew up in church, you've heard this before, but if you're unaware, uh, tax collectors today wouldn't be a big deal. Like if you say you work for the IRS, no one would be like, get out of here, right? But in those days, the, the, the Israel was under Roman rule. And so a tax collector was a Jew most of the time. Your, your neighbor, your coworker, your, well, probably not your coworker, but your neighbor, your, your schoolmate, your friend, that works for Rome to collect taxes from you, right? But not only that, many times they would embezzle more money. They would charge you more money than you already, the burden was too much to bear, and they would pocket that on their own. So they were seen as traitors. So that's these tax collectors. And then it lumps everyone else into this category of notorious sinners, People that are well-known in the town for being sinners. People that when they come into the room, people are whispering. Moms are grabbing their children, pulling them closer when these kind of people come in. And these people, though, were drawn to Jesus. That's an important thing to think about. People far from faith were drawn to Jesus. And so something we need to think about is are those far from faith drawn to you? I think we're in a, in a precarious situation if we as a church or me as a Christ follower, if only Christians applaud me or like me. In Jesus' day, it was the church leaders that were like, what are you doing, bro? And those far from faith felt safe with him. 
That's the way we need to be too. So he was in a unique situation where there was tax collectors and other notorious sinners that came to listen to him, but then also there were Pharisees and teachers of the religious law. So it says this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. The audacity to eat with them. So Jesus told them this story. So there's a context. If you have people furthest from the faith, and then you have the leaders of the faith in one area. The people far from faith think the religious leaders are hypocrites. And the people that are religious leaders think these notorious sinners are the scum of the earth. And they're together. And then it says, so. So Jesus told them this story. In other words, the reason why Jesus is about to say what he's going to say is because of the context and the chemistry of what's happening. That they're, they're really, he probably wouldn't have taught this unless this was happening. So, goes on. First story, he tells three stories. First story, verse 4. If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he'll call his friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. So what's happening here? Shepherd has 100 sheep, just a lot of sheep. One wanders away. He doesn't go, stupid sheep, I still got 99 right? What's he do? He leaves the 99. Where? In the wilderness. He could lose more, but he decides to leave the 99 to go after the one. And when he gets the one and brings it back, he throws a party. Why? What are we learning from this? Because that one matters a lot, a lot. Worth losing more. It couldn't wait. It couldn't wait. He left the 99 immediately and went off to found the one. And when he finds the one, he doesn't shame it, yell at it, you know, right? It's not the, the dog owner that run that rubs the dog's face in the peace stage, you know. He celebrates, carries it. You, you see this idea of like he's gentle. He's not yanking the sheep back. He's carrying it. Different approach throws a party. And then just so we're clear, so Jesus doesn't think his followers are teaching him shepherding lessons. He ends that story with, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous in heaven straight away. Man loses one. Immediately goes and finds it. And when he finds it, he parties. Why? Because lost things matter. Second story. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she should call her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Kind of a weird story. I've never had a neighbor call me and go, I found my lost coin. Let's party. Let's spend coins to celebrate my lo uh, lost coin. Being It's kind of a weird story. But what happens with this, this lady is she lights a lamp. What does that mean? It's nighttime. <laughs> that she's willing to lose sleep. It, the lamp isn't going to run away, 
or the, the, the coin is not going to run away. Wherever it is, under the couch or in the, whatever, it'll still be there in the morning, right? She could have just said, slept on it and used daylight to find it easier. But no, no, no. For her, same situation as a shepherd. No, this has to happen right now. There's an urgency to this, right? Even if I lose sleep, even if it's inconvenient, even if, 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 if nothing else happens, I have to find this coin. Why? Because lost things matter. And then it ends the same way. The second story, Jesus says, and just so you're not confused, I'm not talking about financial stewardship. He says, in the same way, there's joy in the presence of, the, of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And he's going, look, let's bring this back. We're talking about people, not sheep. We're talking about people, not coins. That lost people matter. And, and I can almost see him like looking into the religious leader's eyes and going, you guys get it yet? You get it yet? They aren't the other. They matter. I want you to think about who God is thinking, like thinking about and focusing on. That he would rather leave the 99, if that's what it takes, to go after the one. Immediately, lose sleep, inconvenient. And what's wild is that same idea is why Jesus would end up on the cross in just a few short weeks. And then he, the longest passage that we're going to read, so buckle in. Verse 11, story that you've heard before. And we'll actually just pause here and there to explain it. <clears throat> it says, verse 11, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Two sons. A younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Okay, just so you know, history, uh, that's kind of like a really bad thing to do. Okay, it's almost like if you asked your dad, um, hey, how much am I going to get from your life insurance policy? Could I have that now? In that time, to claim your inheritance early is the same as saying, I wish you were dead. Right? So what does this dad do? You little good for... No. What does he say? So his father agreed. Father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons while he was still alive. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to Las Vegas, a distant land where he wasted all of his money in wild living. You can color in the lines of how you think wild living played out. But he wasn't like watching Netflix, right? Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. So when he runs out of money, his bad decisions find bad luck. And a lot of times it's kind of how it works out in life. seems like a lot of the people that have a whole lot of bad luck had a whole lot of bad decisions right before that. And it seems like a whole lot of times when, oh, you're just lucky. Well, but also with preceding good luck, we're just really good decisions over time. And now you just call me lucky. So that's what happens to him. He made some bad decisions. Wished his dad was dead. Spent all of his inheritance in a really short amount of time. Then a famine hits. This is a trust fund kid. And now he's looking for work. So he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, verse 15 says. And the man sends him into the fields to feed the pigs. Can you imagine that? You were used to people serving you, and now you're serving others. And then it goes further. It says, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. What point in your life do you have to be at that you're looking at slop getting fed to pigs 
And you're like, that's the good stuff right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, you got to be in a really rough spot to go, man, I wish I could eat that stuff. So it hit, he, hit, he hit rock bottom. And it says no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger, being jealous of pigs. Verse 18, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. So he's got this script planned. I'm going to see my dad. Long, he said he came to a, a far distant land. He probably had transportation when he left. He probably didn't when he came back. So he's walking a long way back. And so he's rehearsing. You get the sense of he's rehearsing. Okay, when I see my dad, I'll say this, hat in hand, humble, head down. And he can see the house go from a speck to a little bigger, to a little bigger, to a little bigger. His eyes are on. You can see the butterflies are starting to stir up. I can almost just see him on the edge of the property wondering, like, do I actually do this? Last time I saw my dad, I, I pretty much said I, I wish he was dead. I left the, the responsibilities of the house to my, my other brother. Like, they're probably not going to be too excited to see me. My, my dad's probably going to kick me back out. But he's so at rock bottom, it's worth the risk. But then the last thing that he ever expected happened. It says, while he was still a long way off, verse 20, his father saw him coming. While he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. How in the world did the father see the son before the son saw the father? How's that even possible? Because the son's been walking, dreading what's going to happen when he gets to that house over there. He's been walking for days easily. But yet the father sees him first. How? The only conclusion especially by looking at the last two stories about a shepherd who never stopped looking for the sheep and a woman who never stopped looking for the coin, you get the sense you got a father who never stopped looking for a son. That he dropped everything, that nothing was more important to him. I almost see the father like, like beard overgrown, you know, has a blanket sitting on the front porch going maybe today. Maybe today. Always on the lookout. I can see like the brother and the servant saying, come on, come on in, clean up. It's like, no, no, he can come any minute, any minute. And I want him to see me first when he comes. It says that while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. He, his, his son said to him, father, he started the script. He's like, oh yeah, I got I to say my thing. Father, I sinned against both you and heaven, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And it says, but his father said to the servants, you get the sense of his dad was like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. Just totally ignores him and says, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Crazy. 
Meanwhile, verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. The older son who never left, the older son who was faithful, working. He never left. He had to hold down the fort. He had to take up his brother's responsibilities and his. It says that meanwhile his son was in the fields working. When his son returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he's like, what the heck? He asked one of the servants, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And obviously the brother's like, sweet. Nope. He says the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. He is pouting. He's furious. He's outside the house. So it says, uh, verse, oh yeah, so it's verse 28. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years, Dad, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for my feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, this tells his heart. He doesn't say, but when my brother, he's not even his brother anymore. He's, but when this son of yours, when this guy comes back, after squandering your money, on prostitutes, you celebrate him by killing the fattened calf? And here's the thing, we, we get on the older brother a lot, but the older brother's got a point. He's been faithful. And let's talk practically. The dad divided the kingdom into two. Younger son squandered it. Older son is still sitting there getting interest. I have no idea. But now, when the dad says, let's throw a party, spare no expense, this thing's going to be like a royal wedding, right? Whose money is he spending, right? This is the older brother's inheritance that's being spent because the younger brother spent all of his on God knows what. So the younger, the older brother has kind of a point. Verse 31, but his father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. You had to celebrate, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother, not the son of mine, your brother. Remember who he is. Your brother has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And that's how Jesus ends this chapter. And the story ends with that. The dad telling this older brother he was lost, but now he's found. Then it ends. It doesn't have like this, so the older brother said, you're right, dad. And they went into the party and they celebrated the younger son. It doesn't end there. It ends with a decision to make. Why? Because now it's brought back to reality and Jesus is looking at younger brothers and older brothers. Jesus is looking at Pharisees, religious leaders, and outcasts, unchurched, de-churched, far from faith, scum of the earth in the religious leader's eyes. And he's saying, the dad never stopped looking. And all the dad wanted was for the older son to care as much. For the older brother to see that this isn't just random people. That this is his brother. And to care. And carry the heart of the father. And we don't know how that story ends. 
And Jesus was telling them, you have a decision to make just like the older brother. You're going to focus on you? Or are you going to sacrifice and carry the heart of the Father? Because lost people matter. Jesus was talking to the people who, were, who thought they were out and told them they were not forget, forgotten, that they were not spare parts. Jesus was telling the, the tax collectors and the notorious sinners that they were the ones that God actually had his eyes on. They were, they were the ones that God actually never stops thinking about, that they were the ones that God was actually searching for. The lost ones were the ones that actually caused God to party. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see God partying. But three times in this chapter, the one thing that causes God to party is not church buildings. It's not attendance at services. It's not how much someone tithes. What causes God to celebrate is when lost kids come home. And you know the, the, the duh thing? Is it's just like any parent would. Any parent would. This is a human thing. Do you know why that those that were uh, marginalized, do you know why they thought they could never come to God? Do you know why they thought they were on the outside? Because of the actions of the religious leaders. They told them they were on the outside. And this may be some of your guys' stories. If a spiritual leader ever made you feel like God hated you, or God was mad at you, or God expected you to clean up before coming to him, I'm sorry. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Jesus didn't start his teaching with, tax collectors, stop it. Notorious sinners, you know what you, I know what you did. Quit it. Clean up, come back tomorrow. He didn't. At some point, that would need to be a conversation. If they chose to follow him, they probably need to, to follow him. But he, he loved them and accepted them right where they were. So be encouraged. That's why we're taking so long to go through the New Testament, or not even New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. Why we're taking so long because it's so important for you to see what Jesus is like, how he treated him, because so many Christians don't represent him well. That Jesus loves the outcast. Jesus loves the imperfect. And the reality is all of us are like that. The religious leaders acted like they weren't broken, but they were broken as much as anybody else. Anybody who's cocky, anybody who wants to look down on somebody else, man, if your skeletons in the closet were known, if all the stories about your life were told, if all the stuff between your ears was projected on a screen, I think there'd be a little more humility. All of us, all of us are broken. All of us need a Savior. And so he tells three stories. Parable of lost sheep, parable of lost coin, the parable of a lost son, and you'll see this in your, in your Bibles. It'll say, parable of a lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, parable of a lost son. But I wonder what son it's talking about. Was the prodigal son lost? Yeah. But the older son was just as lost. The, the prodigal son had wandered from home. But the older son had lost the father's heart. He was close to the father, attended church faithfully, but his heart looked totally different than the father's heart. One had a lot of physical distance between him and the father. The other one 
had a bunch of character difference between him and the father. One went astray and had overcome feelings that the father would never accept him back. But the other son is the one I think Jesus was really focusing on, the one who lost his father's heart. So here's a challenge. The worst he wants to come up and closing up. But here's a challenge. Where are you in this story? Because this is more than just neat little story time. Yeah, Jesus has some great points. Where are you in this story? Maybe you're more like the prodigal. What's keeping you away? Like, honestly, what's keeping you away? Sometimes we build walls between us and God that if we actually just engage our mind and our heart a little bit, they're not valid. Yeah, that, that Christian was a hypocrite or those people and blah, blah. Sure. But what's keeping you away from faith? What's keeping you from surrendering your heart to Jesus? Maybe you feel like you've gone too far. I've, I've literally had friends say, if I, you don't want me to come to your church because if I come to church, the, the church is going to implode when I enter the room. It's like, I don't know, man. I think Jesus accepted people way worse than you. Maybe you've seen hypocrisy in the church. Maybe you have questions that no one's been willing to answer. But here's the thing. Maybe it's not real. Maybe all Christians are hypocrites. But if it was real, if it was real, and Jesus really was who he said he was, if he really did die and resurrect like we believe happened, and we'll talk more, that, more on that on, on Easter weekend, then what would be the right next step for you? If it really was real, what would be the right next step for you? Maybe you are like the younger brother who's kind of sitting on the property line and wondering if you should go in. Just go. Just go. I know it can be kind of awkward like a middle schooler at a dance and you're kind of on the sideline. Just, just take that first step. <laughs> just take that first step and start walking. Maybe you're like the older brother. You know what it's like to do church. You know how to raise your hand. You know how to sing the songs. You don't need no monitor. You know the words to the songs. You're a pro. You volunteer. Here's a question. When was the last time your heart broke for people not at church? When was the last time the church was not about you feeling some Holy Spirit goosebumps or you hearing a good message when was the last time church, your biggest prayer driving to church was, God, would you meet people today? Would people coming in with doubts and hurt, would they experience you in a real way today? When's the last time your heart broke like that? Remember, the story ended with the father inviting the older, older brother to join the party, to join him in caring about what he cared about, to celebrate what he celebrates, and he's still making that same invitation today. Following Jesus is not about just doing what he did. Make that really clear. Following Jesus is not just about doing some of the things that Jesus did. Because you know what? There's a lot of Christians that do Jesus-like things, attend services and serve and stuff, but they're kind of overall angry jerks. Following Jesus is about carrying his heart. That to the best of our ability, when people meet you, when people look at your social media, that they go, gosh, that reminds me of the, the heart, the tone of Jesus' life. As we close out, I want you to think about one question. 
candidly be between you and God, would you just, in your heart, would you be willing at some point to say, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And that's a dangerous thing to pray. Because a lot of times in moments like that, God will say, okay, you ready for this? And you'll get a strong impression of, oh crud, I gotta do that? I gotta forgive? I need to give? I need to serve? I need to ask that person for forgiveness? I need, yeah, I need to reconcile? I need to be humble? Yeah, yeah. But would you pray, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? We're gonna end with this one verse. It says, uh, it's Psalm 30, 51, it says, created me a clean heart. What happened was David had a, a little bit of an oops with Bathsheba, right? You can look into it. He made a really bad decision and, and compounded that with more and more bad decisions. And when he comes through a series of events, he realizes how much of an idiot he was. And he pens this verse in Psalm 51. And he says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. That my spirit has gone crooked. Would you renew a right spirit in me? Would that, that's what I've been praying for you guys all week. That distance between you and God, that that would close. The crookedness, the, the, the misconceptions in your heart, that that would be corrected. That God would put a, renew a right spirit in you. Maybe you've been a good employee of God, but you're callous. Maybe you're, I've, I've, I've had many moments in my life, I'm an Enneagram 8, so I kind of get this way easily, but where I don't care about a certain thing that I know I should care about, but I, I, don't, I don't care, but I want to care. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or like, I don't want to care, but I want to want to care. <laughs> you know what I mean? And some of you guys, if you're honest, you're like, yes, pray that. In these moments, God, I know my heart is messed up right now. I know I'm callous right now. Would you renew a right spirit in me? Because Taka's talking about this, and I'm like, I give mental assent to it, but honestly, I don't care. But I know I should, and I want to. Would you renew a right spirit in me? Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll sing this song to close. God, we just, we need you, God, on our, on our best days. Why we, it's not called the, you know, the fruit of us, but it's the fruit of the spirit. God, would you renew that right spirit in us, and would we live out and flesh out your kind of fruit, the love and joy and peace, the caring. God, when Christians show up in, on TV, on news broadcasts and stuff, God, would, they, would, we such, would we still represent the character of God? Would people say, man, when a Christian shows up on the newscast, they're so humble, they're so loving, they're so gentle, they're so other-centered. God, I pray that that would be what we're known for because that's what you're known for. God, I pray that we as a church could be that. And then ultimately, if people can see you clearly, that they would be drawn to you and you would change lives like no church ever can. We just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Let's sing this together.